Hello, everybody, on this Saturday evening. Boy, am I psyched up for tonight. No coffee needed. How are you, Quest of Oak Island members and the YouTube members? How is everybody this evening? As usual, can you guys see me? Can you guys hear me? Tammy, can you hear me? And can you see me? There is a delay. Yes and yes. That's what I want to hear. Beautiful. What a show tonight, guys. What a show tonight. Of course, um, I got to give my shout-outs to our members, and then we'll get right on with the show. I want to thank them for their support, as usual, for the show, for me, for the channel, to Tammy, Annette, Elizabeth, Michelle, the other Annette, Jazdia, Wayne, Starlene, and Renee, and also for Judy and Barbara for their continued support, you know, to keep this channel going. I thank you so much, guys. Just fantastic. Hello, Sand Dollar Ray going on the YouTube side. Now I got to go to the Facebook side. Hello, Earl, Maureen, Anthony, how's it going? Cindy and the crew, they're coming in by the truckloads. Oh, my lordy, lordy, here we go. Here we go. So we're going to get right down to business because um, it's going to take me a while to uh, absorb more information. Hello, Carl. And you guys to absorb more information in detail. So, you have seen my guest this season on the Curse of Oak Island show, season eight. She'll be talking in detail about her in, um, interpretation of boulder alignments, treasure maps, and GIS, as she said, in detail. Good evening, Barbara. Hi, Tom Burns. Without further ado, here is, and let me bring up, Aaron Helton. Hello, Hello. Aaron. Hi, how are you? I can hear you fine, see you fine, and I guess I we're good to go. Too. I want to publicly thank you for accepting this guest appearance. I really, really appreciate it, as I do and as my members do, Erin. Absolutely. Your, uh, your group and your followers have been overwhelmingly supportive, so how could I not? 
Everybody on the chat, hello, Tammy says hello, David, Scott, Wayne, <laughs> Pam. They're going by so fast. Uh, guys, it's going by so fast. Uh, Doreen. Yeah, I'm looking through the looks right now. Michael. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Hello, everyone. Here we are. Here we are. I'd like to start off, uh, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, member, Maureen Valve Orgira, sort of summarized what I wanted to ask you in the beginning. So I'll repeat what this member said. Sure. Do you want one at a time or give you like three, then answer one at a time? How would you like it? Let's start one at a time. Let's, let's start okay. slow. How and why... Did you become interested in this field of work? Go ahead, Erin. Thank okay. you. That's a great start. Um, well, I, I actually started interest in archaeology and history uh, pretty early. I My bachelor's degree is in archaeology at the University of Toronto. And so that was kind of my, my interest in archaeology has been always there since my youth. Um, as far as Oak Island is concerned, that was um, the show itself really did kind of bring that attention. My mother was a Reader's Digest reader, so she was very aware of the Oak Island uh, story. But as far as my interest in Oak Island specifically, that was definitely because of the show. Um, but my interest and my expertise had already been developing in this field um, kind of naturally already. As I said, my uh, bachelor's was at uh, University of Toronto in archaeology. It was there that uh, I was introduced to GIS, and I ended up adding that as a minor. Um, after that, I ended up uh, working in cultural resources management in Toronto for almost a year. Um, although in Canada, the ground freezes half the year, so archaeology work being very seasonal, um, and I am a dual citizen. So I ended up moving south and ended up uh, continuing to do cultural resources management, both uh, a little bit of field work, but mostly mapping and mostly GIS analysis uh, here in the U.S. and Texas now. Okay. So that's kind of how it all started. Um, I've, I've been been kind of been in this field for a while, um, and and the show really did bring my attention to Oak Island. Okay, and about the show, the second part of her question out of three or four hers is, how did you come across the Oak Island topic to begin with? Um, probably my mother. Okay. I'd say the first, my first hearing of it was probably through my mother. I would say she's definitely the one that was the first. The first to be no, no, to know about it and uh, and exposed me to it initially, but again, it wasn't in a lot of detail. The show right. definitely filled in the detail. Also, she asked, "Why did you decide to apply your background to help figure out some of the mystery?" Because it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, it I I've, I actually tried to bug people at the show through official channels for a mm -hmm. couple of years telling them that they really needed a GIS analyst. Really? And yeah, I actually, I, you know, through regular Prometheus channels and all mm -hmm. sorts of, you know, e you know, through their Facebook chat, I had mentioned previously to them, you know, you really need a GIS analyst. You've got a great surveyor collecting all of this data. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I doubt he has time to really sit and, and dive into it. He's just too busy collecting it. So you really need an analyst to be to be able to start diving into all of this stuff, dedicated analyst. And um, 
eh, radio silence, you don't hear much. Um, you know, they also don't know what my own abilities are, and that's understandable, right? And um, so I just kind of, after I discovered that Nova Scotia had the uh, LIDAR data available uh, for download, 2016 mm -hmm. LIDAR data, um, yep. I just took it upon myself and said, okay, well, I, I know how to do this. I can, I'll do it myself. And um, so that's kind of where it all started is um, just when the LIDAR became available, I thought, okay, game on, game on. And I just started downloading as much as I could and uh, accumulating his, uh, historic imagery, historic survey maps. Uh, aerial imagery and just kind of wanted to do my best to compile the data that I that I could and see if I could make any sense of it or, or find any relationships between all of what seemingly are very independent data snippets. I mean, right. different countries, different time periods, different yep. cultures. It's so different mm -hmm. and try to do my best to try to make some sense of it. Yep. And Tom Burns says, well, they have one now. Uh, you're sure as heck <laughs> do now. Okay, in the, in the fourth part, she has, have you gotten involved with a mystery like this before? And uh, Maureen, uh, thank you for your answers. Anything about this before? Um, I would say the whole treasure hunting thing yeah. is relatively new to me. Okay. Um, and probably in just the last few years through the Oak Island work. Um, yeah, I mean, I've read other I've read other treasure hunting stories uh, for sure. Um, there's some interesting ones here in Texas too, but um, I haven't spent too, too much time diving into them. Oak Island has definitely been my focus for the last few years. Right. And my question now, this comes from Johnny. I like like backstories of like how mm -hmm. the production company, finally you got a hold of these people. Now I want the story, if you can say, <laughs> I don't you know. finally got a hold of somebody uh, in Los Angeles. That connection and how you got into the war room remotely. Can you say that process for us, us members? Thank you. I, I don't know. The one thing I will say is it wasn't through LA. It was through Rick Lagina directly. Okay. That's the only thing I can probably say safely. Um, the official channels didn't really get me very far. And then I, okay. finally took, I took finally took a chance and just reached out to Rick directly. Fantastic. See, this is this back information. I just love it. That's a little bit of tidbit, but nobody else knows that. Yeah. The official channels are pretty closed. I'm not going to lie. They're very hard to penetrate. Yeah. A lot of people send me their theories and I just tell them, well, I don't have any decision on what's being shown. I direct them to the Oak Island um, site, which they say they accept all the emails, you know, the one that Rick and Marty own, Oak Island Tours, and that's all I do, you know what I mean? They think I can uh, get them on the show and all this, and no, just pass it on to the Oak Island Tours, and, but yet I had people that they said they responded to, but they're probably choosy and pick and choose on uh, what they uh, call out to what they mm -hmm. want to their storyline, you know what I mean? Yep, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I've been to the Oak Island Tours channels. I've, I've reached out to them numerous times and uh, um, they were, they were sometimes responsive, but no, no, not following up. You know what I mean? Not, not a full follow-up. And so when I finally started to put some stuff together for Xena Halpern's maps, I thought, okay, I'm going to take one final more direct stab at reaching out to somebody because I really think there's going to be some interest here. So yep. I, I took and a final stab and that one worked. <laughs> very good, uh, Aaron. And now with uh, Zena and then Judy, 
how did you connect with those two with your research and the old map with the uh, uh the boulders uh how much time was involved in that to tie it into what had Zena's research did? Thank you, Erin. Um, Zena's connections were by accident after I had started finding the boulder alignments. Okay. I was already starting to find relationships in the boulders and starting to kind of remap the, the lost area around the money pit area. And then after that had kind of started to piece itself together, I thought, you know, I'm going to take a stab at these other instructions, the LaFormule cipher. I'm going to see if I can make sense of any of this. And so when I started trying to follow the instructions, that was when I started realizing, oh, this actually fits what I've been working with. And so it, they were kind of two independent rabbit holes that mm -hmm. ended up overlapping. Alrighty, we have uh, my historian, my quest historian. His name is Daniel Spino. Okay. He has unbelievable breakdowns and things that mm -hmm. he shows on my group. I don't know if you read any of his. I see or... lots of those posts, absolutely. He's, fa he's fantastic. And we'll take this one more question, and then we'll get into your uh, presentation. Sure. He goes, hi, Aaron. What is triangulation? Triangulation. Sure. Triangulation. Uh, let's see if I don't, let's see if I can say this without butchering the definition in <laughs> layman's term. Triangulation is when you use a distance from three, usually you would use three, these say triangle because you expect try for three. Mm -hmm. You expect to use distances from three different points and the intersection of those three distances would give you a very precise single location. So that's actually how we triangulate GPS. That's how we triangulate uh, off of cell towers, um, getting distances from known locations and getting uh, three of them guarantees that you only have one possible uh, spot out of all of those three different radii uh, or circumferences, actually, in that case. Um, in this case, what I will be showing today, in a lot of cases, I only have two intersections, not three. I think in a perfect world, we would have perhaps three, although in, in a lot of cases, that second intersection is off the island, is in water. So in, in which case, a third intersection is not always necessarily needed to, to place a position. Um, but that's the general principle of triangulation is when you have three, technically you could have more than three, but three, bare minimum, three points that have a distance. And then those three distances will end up intersecting across one specific point. And that one point is a, is a triangulated point from those okay. other three locations. And thank you. I got to give you one more. This is my friend from Canada, and he was on the show, I think, season five or something. His name is Jeffrey Irving. Okay. And he had a Columbus uh, theory. And he mm -hmm. says, what was your driving force to get involved? And then we'll get into the screen share. What was my driving force? Um, starting to see the relationships. Honestly, when you, when, you, when you start seeing straight lines, when you start seeing things being equidistant to each other, um, that was when, when it starts to click, when it starts to lock in, it's hard not to get excited. So uh, that definitely is, was my drive as things continued to click and kind of lock in. It kind of keeps pushing you to keep going. Okay, Erin. Now, on your screen share, I see me and you in the box also on the screen share. Now, that's going away. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to pop out, and then you just let me know if you want to pause in between for more questions, or you just let me know because I'll hear every word uh, you will be saying. 
Sure. I think I have three good spots that we'll be able to pause for questions. So. All right, guys. Are you guys excited for this or what? Let's hear the members. Let's see a let's see a yeah on that thing. <laughs> let's let's this is like a football game. This is like a pep rally. Okay, here we go, guys. Here we go, Aaron. Here we go. Great. There we go. Excellent. Okay. Let's get started. Um, so we'll uh, talk about my GIS analysis. We'll actually, I'll start by describing a little bit about what GIS is and my Oak Island theory. Oh, let me make sure my map. There we go. Okay. So what is GIS? GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. This is a definition from the Esri website. Esri is the software, is the company that makes the software that I use. I use Esri ArcMap. I've been using ArcGIS Pro. Um, so this definition is, is a slightly modified definition from the Esri website. A geographic information system is a framework for gathering, managing, and analyzing spatial data to reveal deeper insights such as patterns and relationships to help make smarter decisions. And another great example I wanted to differentiate a little bit, uh, GIS versus, say, uh, CAD. CAD and survey, uh, surveyors often use CAD software um, when they're surveying data. That's, that's what Steve uses when he's collecting his data and storing his data. CAD software is incredibly precise at a spatial level. Um, let's, I, I, my company works for, uh, has a lot of oil and gas clients, so I'll use an oil and gas example. Um, a pipeline in CAD perhaps would have lines for both its center line. It might have lines designated for the outer walls of the pipe. It might have lines for its inner lines of the pipe. It might have intricate dimensional data for each valve. It might have intricate dimensional data for each fitting. Um, and in, so in CAD, it's more about that visual representation being perfect. In GIS, we might actually store that pipeline strictly as a center line. And all of that other data about its inner circumference, outer circumference, uh, length, perhaps fluid pressure, um, all of those attributes would be in a table attached to that center line. And by storing data in this way, a little bit more abstractly in the attribute table, it means we can access that information programmatically and we can run analyses on them. So we there's a ton of tools in GIS where you could, you know, grab that feature or grab that line and say, I want to calculate the volume across this entire thing. And you can actually, from that feature, go and grab those other attributes, go grab its pressure, go grab the inner circumference, go grab those attributes and then and do logic, run logic, run math, run whatever you need to run to get whatever derivative information you need to get out of it. So CAD is very largely visual, very precise, very accurate but more visual. And um, GIS is more of a platform to, to run code, to run analyses, to abstractly store the data so we can do stuff with it. So that is a little bit, little bit different um, uh, approach, but using the same data, they are absolutely married and they work very well together. Um, so my interest, of course, from watching the show, I'm being a map person myself, um, when Zena presented her material and had a few maps involved, I, I got excited. Um, I know there are, there's a lot of controversy about them. I know there's questions about their authenticity. I know a lot of people think they're fake. Um, I will be focusing almost exclusively on this particular map 
Um, I know there were other maps in Zena's uh, possession as well. I'm still kind of working through them. I'm still got, I've still got working theories kind of still, they're still percolating. Um, but this theory was predominantly working off of the map uh, that had Oak Island directly uh, depicted on it with all of these features. And, oh, there we go. So what we'll do, um, so what I did is started collecting a whole bunch of data. And I started collecting imagery, survey maps. And what really excited me was when I discovered that Nova Scotia was publishing finally uh, or releasing LIDAR data. Uh, this is 2016 LIDAR data. This is a digital elevation model of Oak Island. And um, one thing that is interesting with LIDAR, especially uh, in busy terrain, is it can be difficult to actually see the finer features uh, through the overwhelming undulations. And another way that we can work through that is a, a hill shade. Actually, I'll, I'll explain this one a little bit more first. So this is a digital elevation model. We have a color ramp here. So the higher whites are higher elevation. Uh, the color ramp goes all the way down. So the greens, the greens at the bottom are lower elevation. Um, but you can kind of tell that the, the drumlins themselves are kind of overwhelming the big picture. You can't really see a lot. You can kind of see the lot lines, but not very well. One way to work around that is the hill shade. This is, I'm sure you've seen this before. Um, Hillshade is derived by uh, basically making a fake light source from some corner. Usually it's the northeast or sorry, northwest corner, top left corner. Um, you can choose wherever you want your light source to be. In fact, oftentimes people will render a hillshade from multiple light source angles to try to get to make sure they don't miss anything. And hillshades are certainly better. It's a lot easier to depict your, your lot lines. It's a lot easier to depict your pits, but it's, it's still not perfect. Um, if you have features that are uh, obscured by shadows, you could potentially miss them. If you have features that run along the same direction that your light source is coming from, you could almost miss them entirely. Um, sometimes it's also still hard to depict whether or not it's really a rise or a sink compared to what that natural terrain undulation was. So what I ended up applying instead is called a LIDAR-derived local relief model. And this was actually initially uh, proposed, this whole method was proposed specifically for archaeological prospection. It was published in 2010 by Ralph Hesse. And this was the method that I followed. It's a multi-step process that essentially remodels the, the terrain's bigger undulations without all of those purge details and then subtracting them from each other so you're only left with the purge details. So the way this looks is, so this is how we started with the elevation model. The first thing we do is we purge all those fine details. So there's a smoothed version. I'll just flip back and forth a couple times so you can see the smooth versus the detailed. Now when we generate the smooth detailed version or the smooth version versus the detailed version, every pixel, every cell in this raster data set still has an elevation value, a new calculated smooth elevation value, which means we can actually subtract these two data sets from each other. So if we subtract the smoothed one from the detailed one, we end up with something that looks like this, where the large undulations have now been removed and what we're left with are human scale features. Not necessarily everything here is made by humans, but it's at that finer scale that humans would start to scar up the ground. Um, one of the great examples of the natural features that still kind of show up are the sinkhole. Uh, the terraces along the Eastern Drumlin still get caught a little bit in here. 
especially this one as well. But generally speaking, these large hills are now gone and we can start focusing more on these lot lines, ditches, spoil piles associated with the ditches. Here's another little searcher pit and a little spoil pile right next to it. So we can actually kind of start to distinguish sinkholes and, and rises. And it was with this feature class, it was with this data set along with the aerial imagery and survey maps that I attempted to try to piece together um, both the information from the features they already knew about, features that had been reportedly been there in the past but have been destroyed, and also try to maybe find some more in-situ features that they may not have been aware of. So I will be using a combination of all of these data sets to try to create a bigger picture of what is going on. I will also point out um, on this that blue does not necessarily mean water. Blue is just a sink. Um, I put a three-color three ramp across this, so anything that's yellow is basically the terrain that's been zeroed out. And then the red, of course, being the rises above mount, mounds, spoil piles and whatnot, uh, boulders potentially. Um, and then below being sinks. You can actually, this little dot right here, that is, that's the cone E searcher pit right there, that little guy right there. Okay, so moving forward, one principle that I will be using a lot of, and I know it was talked about in the show, is the use of the compass. I'll be drawing a lot of circumferences around points of interest, and in doing so, we'll end up triangulating, maybe not with three, but with two, most of, at least two, um, intersections through both straight lines and circles. And the compass, uh, we know the square and compass is, are some symbols that are often used in fraternities like the Masonic Order. Um, but the compass has been around forever. We have many other depictions in ancient art uh, being used in practical ways because this was really originally meant to be a tool, not a symbol. Um, so we're going to do the same thing. We're going to apply these old principles to Oak Island. Okay, ready for some maps. We're going to start with what everybody is familiar with, and that's Nolan's Cross. And I'm, so I'm going to start demonstrating how these circles actually help us understand the relationships between these boulders on Nolan's Cross. So first of all, cone E, you can actually draw a circle out to cone C and cone B. This actually helps prove that cone C and cone B are equidistant to cone E. And we can do the same thing with cone D. And we can do the same thing with cone A. All of these indicate that they are equidistant from cone B and cone C. And all three of these together confirm that all three of these are in a straight line, perfectly straight line. We can actually take this even further. Let's add a few of the tree of life stones. We have the strength boulder and the kingdom boulder, both confirmed boulders from the tree of life theory. The kingdom, the kingdom stone also has an equidistant, uh, or has an equal distance from cone E, or sorry, cone C to cone B, just like cone E, cone D, and cone A did, confirming that it is also part of the same straight line. Strength has its own circle. Strength is equidistant to cone E and cone A. So this should kind of give us an idea that these circles and circumferences are are the way to go. This is how these boulders are getting placed. Okay, so to keep going from here, 
This line may look familiar if anyone's been watching the show. This is a line proposed by Richard Motes, Cone D, Cone B. And actually, it hits a boulder that they excavated when they were working in their uh, in their cofferdam area. This was a boulder that was already that Steve was able to confirm for me when I first asked about it. It was excavated and it was GPSed with all of his other survey data, so he was able to confirm that that is in fact a real boulder and it was there, and it lines up beautifully with cones D and B. And this is where it got really interesting. We have another boulder out on called 21A. I called it 21A. Oh, I will also mention the labels that I'm using, these 20, 21As. Um, I, instead of coming up with creative names for all of these boulders, um, I started labeling them based on the, the plot that they were on and then adding a letter suffix. So that's, that's what you'll see here. Um, so 21A, you can see it here. It actually is right on where the high tide was at the time. So it's got a little bit of vegetation on it um, or debris, I should say, on it. But it is still pretty, pretty clearly there and was confirmed. I believe they said that they confirmed all the features on the show. And so what's really interesting is this line from 20A to 21A. Not only does it hit the Kingdom Stone along the way, but this line is perfect east-west line. And I mean, when I say perfect, I mean, it's within five hundredths of a degree perfect. It is really incredibly precise. And it's hard to say it's not on purpose. I am going to add another boulder here. This is another boulder I proposed for them. There's the imagery to say where I uh, derived this boulder from. It's very clearly one of the biggest boulders in that area. Um, so this is 6A. And if we draw some more circles and lines, if we take 6A, I think this was covered on the show, 6A out to 21A, the far west side of the grid line, all the way around. And we take cone C through the headstone. Now the headstone is not right in between cone C and cone B like it is sometimes depicted. The GPS that I was provided, it's a little off. It's a little further southwest. You run C through the headstone and we look at this intersection, that intersection hits this little knob right there on my local relief model. And that suspected feature turned out to be my West Anchor. Steve walked up to it and went, tink. That's why. <laughs> that was the dot that told me where it was. So to continue, this is how I had proposed the North Anchor. Now, the LIDAR and the imagery were not very helpful on this one. There's not a lot to see there. It's right along the erosion line from the shore. I didn't have a whole lot to see, but the reason why I chose that spot is because it's a perfect 30 degrees from West Anchor, but it is also an intersection line through the Kingdom Stone, Cone E, Cone D, and Cone A. And that can also be confirmed with our circumference out to cone C and cone B. And this is why I chose that North Anchor location for them to look. So let's talk about the anchors a little bit. They're on land. They are not in the water. So the idea of a nautical anchor, we can probably scrap that idea. For me, these anchors from a, G, from a GIS perspective, from a mapping perspective, one form of an anchor 
that I would be more familiar with on land would be more a survey marker or a ground control point. And usually you need two if you want to have a perfectly scaled and oriented map. You need at least two. Um, even in archaeology, when you are about to do an archaeological survey, you usually establish a datum. And on many of the sites that I have done mapping for, they usually establish more than one. They'll have a primary datum and then they'll have a secondary datum or, or, or a couple of them. And the reason for that is once when you've got more than one, once when you've snapped those points onto your, to, to real world coordinates, it just your whole thing gets oriented, rotated, translated and scaled. You need, you need, as long as you're in the same projection, you only need two points in order to orient a map to something. So to me, that's what these anchors were. That's what these anchors were. I believe that I know we, I know we understand Nolan's Cross most familiarly, and I will be drawing lines out from Nolan's Cross, but I suspect that all of whatever was master planned across the island, I suspect it started at these anchors and built out from there. So I'm going to attempt to do that with the anchors and some of the boulders that we know about and some of the large boulders and attempt to peruse through these survey maps and try to glean some more light out of these and try to recreate and redraw what these survey maps are supposed to be saying. Now, I'm sure these all look very familiar. Um, they're all over the internet. They've been published a few times. Um, one thing that really stood out on these two maps were these measurements here. These measurements are always being depicted from the drilled rocks. Here's the westerly drilled rock, easterly drilled rock. This has got two weird, instead of having one long measurement between the two, it's got this weird break. And it's got two measurements here instead. So this seems, there's something weird. There's something off about these maps. And, and I wasn't really sure what to do with them until I found this 1939 map from Popular Science. All of a sudden, the measurements that kept going to these drilled stones aren't going to those drilled stones. It's going to these other unmarked boulders. And having these other boulders in play gave me more to work with. So from here, I decided, okay, well, we've got measurements. We've got more boulders. We've got a map that's not quite to scale, but it's closer. Let's take a stab at it. So we did. And so here's how we start. We're gonna zoom in a little bit. Okay, so we're gonna introduce a couple of more boulders as we go. And again, these are always very prominent, very visible boulders in the imagery. There's, it's usually sticks out like a sore thumb in its own general vicinity. Uh, this boulder 12, uh, 20B, I call it, it is actually due south from 20A. And if we draw a line through, this is another Richard Moats line, actually, through cone C, through cone A, all the way down to cone B. We now have a straight line that completes across the entire island. And let's add another circle here from our west anchor out to the headstone. By the way, this distance, dang close to 522 feet. And I think this intersection is the West Drilled Stone location. From here, we will keep going. Let's add 617A here. This is the boulder on the 2011 imagery, clear as day. 
Let's draw a line from 17A to 20A. We're going to draw two more lines on this one. We're going to do a bunch at once. Okay, I showed this line before from the north anchor to cone C to cone B. And we're going to loop it all the way around to this intersection. But we're going to add one more line before we put a stone down. And that is a line from cone E due east. And we end up with three points here. And I think those are the three boulders from the map. East drilled stone, 20C, and 20D. And we're going to zoom in a little bit. Let's bring up our map. And let's do a bit of a sanity check on these measurements. This measurement here says it should be 115.5 feet between 20C and 20D. I measured between my two points, 115.2. We're within 0.3 feet. We're within inches of what this map suggests it should be following these boulders. From here, let's go ahead and put in the U-shaped structure. I think 20C is actually depicting the flood convergence point. You can perfectly fit 66 feet five finger drain in this position from 20C. So I suspect that that location is our flood convergence point. Okay, let's keep going. We're gonna go after this boulder next. Now we've got two lines running through here. This one coming off the screen. This is off of the north anchor again. Now the last time we drew a circle off the north anchor, we were running it through two of the Nolan's Cross stones and we were running it up through 20D and the East Drilled Stone. In this case, I've actually extended it a little further. I have a radius going a little bit further out, so it hits 20C instead. So that's that first circle. The second circle is from the East Drilled Stone out to the radius to hit the west drilled stone. And this intersection is what I suspect is the location I'm calling 18A. It's this boulder here just south of the money pit. Okay, so now that we have 18A established, let's go after the stone triangle perhaps. It says it's 231 feet and the map was oriented north-south, so it's just it's due south from 18A. So let's draw ourselves a circle that's 231 feet and stick the north or stick a potential stone triangle due south, 231 feet. Okay, so let's try to keep proofing this map. If we go 45 degrees to the northeast from the stone triangle, we should hit this boulder up here. Well, if you draw a 45 degree line from there, guess what you hit? you hit 20D with very good precision. Not only did I discover that, but if you keep going around the circle, 45 degrees, let's go due west. I'm pretty sure that gives us this stone up here, 19A. And let's do some measurement sanity checks, 297 feet between this stone and this stone. My measurement, 296.1. We are within a foot of the measurements depicted on this map. OK, 
continuing on, this is where it gets a little interesting. Trying to continue to proof this, we have 495 feet or 30 rods. Oof, that one doesn't look so good. 599.9 feet or 36.36 rods. So this is where we have a measurement that just doesn't compute, doesn't fit. Everything else is fitting really nicely. And then all of a sudden we have a, a measurement that is over 100 feet too long. And with everything else fitting as nicely as it did, I couldn't help but wonder if 30 versus 36 rods was an old transcription error. Because I, I could very easily suspect that a very poorly closed six could have been misinterpreted as a very poorly closed zero. If this is true, if we take a 30 rods, and, or we if we take that 30 rods to actually be 36 rods, then we are 0.36 rods off. 0.36 rods is within six feet of the measurement that they said. So that's my proposal of an adjustment to all of these maps. I do propose that the most or oldest, most original version of these maps, I suspect said 36 rods, not 30. And honestly, looking over all of the maps, the geometry doesn't really make sense um, when you kind of look at what the distances are in this general area. 495 feet isn't going to reach from this cove down here very well at all. So I think this is a very plausible transcription error. And with that one fix, all of a sudden, everything kind of kind of makes sense. So let's keep going. Let's go after the money pit. This was, of course, tricky because the map doesn't really depict where the money pit is. It just kind of shows a bunch of shafts in the general area. So I took a stab at it. <laughs> so let's come out here. We're going to take a look at another couple of features that I'm going to use. We have 15A here. This was another weird little pimple looking thing uh, from my LIDAR, another, another feature. And uh, 16A, that's another confirmed boulder, the bigger one, not the little one next to it, the big one. And if we draw some intersection lines through those, 15A to 20A, 16A to the East Road Stone, and then the West Anchor matching the radius to 18A, the boulder we just recently placed. It was this that I used to attempt to place the Money Pit location. And this location, um, I did ask them for a few other reference points to kind of help me lock these in, and uh, RF1, at, well, excuse me, RF1 at the time was uh, their um, Kazon of choice of, of where they thought the money pit was. Um, and also the seismic anomaly was another one that I had requested. And in both cases, uh, they were within, they fell within a couple of feet of that money pit location. So that was kind of, that's my recreation of the money pit area. So if we just want to clean up our map, Put the U structure in, put the five finger drains in, and let's pull up our other map. That's my completed solution right there. That, that is my attempt at recreating the money pit area as it once was using in situ boulders that still exist. And I think at this point, I'm going to pause in case there are questions. 
So if you guys want to come back. Oh, my lordy, Aaron. Oh, my lordy. <laughs> the only thing that sort of had a little plausibility in my brain is mm -hmm. when you were when you were showing the uh, circumferences of all these circles. Mm -hmm. What determine you on its size, the, the the size of the circle on each one that you hit the boulders? But how did you determine what size of circumference? The the how did they come about? Thank you. In in all cases, I always had it snapping to another existing boulder. So okay. I wasn't picking arbitrary measurements. In every case, if I was trying to place a new boulder the radius went out to snap a, a distance to another boulder. So it was always a distance to another boulder that determined that circumference. And then it just, and then I just continued the same arc around. Okay. Um, I do, I will say, I suspect, I have reason to believe, I'm not going to get into detail now, but I do have reason to believe that there could be up to over, over 50 boulders of or stones of significance across the Island for this master plan. Um, I'm, I don't have all of them, obviously. Um, I'm sure if we did, I suspect a lot more of these intersections would be arc intersections, not with the straight lines like I'm using. Um, I focus specifically on boulders that would demonstrate the proof of concept. Mm -hmm. I have, I, I'm, I mean, we all saw. I didn't. We didn't hit. We didn't hit the tunnel on our on our drill attempt with this <laughs> alignment. So there's obviously room for improvement. And uh, but I wanted to demonstrate the proof of concept because I, I, I do think it's on the right track. I think we're getting much closer to understanding how the relationships between these boulders um, are placed. But I may not have every single arc intersection relationship right. I there could still be uh, other boulders out there that would that would help hone these in more accurately. So okay. there, I mean, I'm fully willing to admit there's still a little bit of guesswork trying to figure out which boulders related to which one for these intersections. Um, and that's, you know, like I said, this was really a proof of concept to show where I think we're headed. I, 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 I love opportunities to keep, you know, trying to refine it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but this was, this was my first stab at it in attempting to recreate the money pit area using uh, boulders that haven't been disturbed further out. Right. And uh, Michael says, has Erin been able to compare her research to the original Fred Nolan's maps? Obviously you did, right? Um, I have been struggling to get my hands on them. <laughs> Okie dokie. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. Um, I've been that was that was a big one on my on my to do list, but I have not um, gotten them into my hands. So right. Also, uh, Tom Burns says in re recent episodes of the show, they suggest that the location of the money pit is incorrect. Like I said, you got to go west of the C one. You got you were, we're looking all in the wrong spot. Right. All these years we've been digging in the wrong spot. All the holes, all the shafts, all the drilling. What do you think of that? Um, I think there's a lot going on under there. And I think the money pit's probably not the only thing under there. There's probably tunnels. There's probably more than one tunnel. Um, I think it's really hard when you're just punching holes mm. the way that they're doing that. Um, it's It just makes it so difficult to put all that context together even if they are chasing tunnels, it's really hard to know exactly what their trajectory is. It's really hard to know how they 
how they're hooking up to each other underground or or how they hook up to things below them or above them. So um, I think it's great that they're doing the best they can to keep chasing features as they find them. I think that's, I mean, um, if you want to right. stay focused in the money pit area, I mean, that's all you can do, right? <laughs> right. But I was thinking also uh, they sort of want to hone in sort of, even if mm -hmm. something's there or not, for expense wise, I mean, it'd be about $25 million to open up right. that whole area. Mm -hmm. So I understand Marty and Rick trying to hone in on one little area and maybe they could drop with like a 12 foot case on in there instead right. of, you know, you know, money wise, spending wise to, right. to look in that area. But when they were hitting that shaft and they kept on going more East, you know who I was thinking of? Who? You. Oh, <laughs> The shaft that you said, mm -hmm. even though they didn't find it, was way east of C1, was it not? Uh, I'm trying to remember where C1 is. I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head, okay. actually. But as far as they were getting farther away from C1 now, mm -hmm. I was saying, well, maybe this is part of a shaft they don't know, but a right. shaft that you pointed out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what was going through my mind. Yeah, I I'm not quite sure how all the all the shafts in that area are are going to be related. Um, I mean, we already know. I mean, we'll be talking about it soon about the other corridors that that I right. that I've drawn out and that I've followed. But I would not be surprised if that's that's probably not the only corridor down there. Um, that may be the corridor that you're supposed to take to get somewhere, but that doesn't mean there could be. I mean, there's flood tunnels. There's mm -hmm. all sorts of other potential tunnels that could be under there, leading to other places, or 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 giving air access, or water access, or um, there could just be more going on than the one corridor that's described in in Zena's La Formula cipher. So, right, oh, Michelle, I think, yeah. Oh, Michael says also out of all the theories presented since the show's inception. What does Erin believe is there or who does she believe that depositors are? In your opinion, you're pinpointing a spot for the vault. But what does Erin think? Who put it where that we're trying to find out? But what do you think it is from where? Go ahead. <laughs> well, um, still working on that a little bit. Um, oh. There have there. I've done a. Sorry, can you hear me okay? I heard you kind of Yep, I can hear you. Okay, good. Um, I'm still working on that. Uh, we're, I, I, I know it's, it's been mentioned before that a couple of us theorists are working together trying to uh, kind of figure out mm -hmm. how our work fits together. Right. Um, so some of us are, uh, Chris, Donna, and Jake Roberts, I know, are chasing down some Rosicrucian connections. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, they do their, their plaque thing as well and the Francis Bacon connections. Um Chris Morford and Corian Mall are doing French connections. Mm -hmm. um, and we're all seeing connect. We're all seeing links. We're all seeing relationships, but we're all not quite sure how we all fit together yet. And so that's kind of what, what we're trying to, to piece together. Um, I, I think all of us have components that are right yep. and we just have to figure out how they fit together. And so that's, I, I think, I'm leaning towards uh, Rosicrucian depositors myself, um, but I'm still that's that's still in the works. <laughs> so, so we'll have to keep we'll have to see as the as the rest of this continues. For yep, all you guys together, and you guys at least are putting X's on spots 
um, to look in different areas, which we all appreciate. But then as viewers, like they show us a snippet of you and your um, theory, just like the rest of them. And all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. You mm -hmm. know, the next thing, the next thing. I understand how the show works, but us as members just love, like when you and the rest of the people come on mm -hmm. and actually detail what you can say to understand most of it. Because that, I don't know how long you were on, four minutes or so. There is a lot of stuff that was in there that was not really explainable to us as viewers. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Understandable. Yeah. It's, it really is a challenge. You spend so much effort trying to, I mean, you're seeing the presentation as I'm showing it to you today, where right? You put so much effort trying to walk people through the steps, step by step. So, to, so everyone can follow. And then it still gets condensed into yep. this little four minutes and, and things that you knew were integral to like bring people along, don't all come along with it. And so it's very difficult to kind of You've already put so much effort to kind of refine as much as you can, and then it still gets hacked and refined even further, kind of. So it's 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 tricky. It's very difficult to kind of um, be able to provide the information that they need to be able to continue in their investigations, but also have it concise enough for, for the show to be able to portray. Yep, we got uh, Rex and Alex Nelson. Aaron has the best theory I have seen presented so far on this show. <laughs> Well, I mean, you. there is a lot of people supporting you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. The support has been truly overwhelming. I'm, I've been, been very blessed with how, uh, how much positive feedback I've been receiving. Because as I've been here since 2016, your detailed information coming off these boulders and the distances that are just correct and right on that was ever, never shown to us, as far as I know, like out of the out of the war room. No. It, it wasn't as direct as you presented it. And I used to be in civil engineering. I used to do surveying. And when you have Steve showing you a point mm -hmm. from a remote spot, Steve, go here, blah, blah, blah. And on TV, he walks to the boulder. He puts the scepter on the boulder. Yup, this is Aaron's. Anchor bolt, boom, right on top of the rock. We have never seen that correlation of exact science working. We've had theories and they go digging, but we never had a statistic that came out. Okay, here it is. Go find it. And boom, you hit the boulder. That's unbelievable, Aaron. That's just, that's just unbelievable. <laughs> well, thank you. But we have the LIDAR to thank for that. <laughs> The yeah. LIDAR showed us where it was. <laughs> yeah. But when it all fits in, I'm saying, you know, when it all fits yes. in, Absolutely. it's good. It's not saying, well, we didn't find the boulder or it's just in dirt or whatever. That's what I like right. to do. Right. And again, with those anchors, too, I thought it was really important. I'm glad they talked about it, actually, on this show is um, all the other boulders that I've shown so far, I think you can all agree, are big, noticeable. I'm not just grabbing any random rock. I'm grabbing right. a the visually very obviously large boulder uh, for all these features, the anchors kind of are the exception. The anchors are small. And as survey markers, you being a surveyor, survey markers are kind of meant to be hidden by to everybody else except for the surveyor. They're not, they're not really meant to be your end product. They're your starting point. 
And so even when I was talking with Steve, he was kind of, he was, in, he was agreeing. He says, oh yeah, I've got surgery markers on the island and they, people, they, they get lost. They, people they pull them out, rip them out, or they kick them over and they, they lose them. And, and it's frustrating. So for him to, as a surveyor to a surveyor, he recognizes that, that, oh yeah, no, survey markers actually are small and subtle. So other people don't run into them and knock them over. The whole purpose of them is to be subtle. Only a few select people are supposed to know where those anchors are or where the survey markers are. You save the big boulders for your final product, for the final master plan, for the boulders that you want the final people to see. Um, so that was that. I was glad they talked. They talked about that a little bit on the show for those survey right. markers um, mm -hmm. because they. I wanted to. I actually wanted them to be small because the smaller the boulder, the more precise you're going to be uh, coming off of them. Right, and we used to put pins in. And right. um, a cover of your survey license will be on top of the pin. But mm -hmm. the island has been so upheavaled. But yet, this is where Fred Nolan's maps come into play. I mean, I used to plot on maps. I didn't have no GPS. That's all I had was a notebook and a transit and, mm -hmm. and, a, and a rod. That was it. You know, boots, spray, uh, bug spray and a cigar and a big floppy hat. So I always tease uh, te Steve. You're too clean to be a surveyor. I always tell him you're too clean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's the island's not very big, and they've been doing a lot of brush clearing, so I'm sure he can. It's probably a little easier tra traversing across that island and than some, for example, around here. If I'm doing field survey down here, I'm filthy really fast. <laughs> right, right. And then I was I put it out to the chat. Then we'll start again on your presentation. Sure. We'll continue that. They're worried about this paved area, as you know, mm -hmm. on the show. Yep. And I'm saying a lot of theorists, a lot of things come off Nolan's cross. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying if everything's so precise, that means somebody planned it out. Mm -hmm. When they planned it out, I have no idea. Where these boulders came from does pique my interest. Mm -hmm. Ten-ton boulders are very hard to move in a swampy mucky area absolutely in the year 1300 or whatever so that's what i brought out to the members is maybe these roads or paveways were made that heavy to actually construct nolan's cross not really digging out for a chamber or a tunnel but to construct nolan's cross because of its precise uh measurements what do you think of that idea then we'll continue on with your presentation I think it's probably a really good proposal. I think, I mean, there's no reason to say the road was used for just one thing or just the other, right? right. So, I mean, the road could have been used for depositing, it could have been used for retrieving, and it could have also been used, and or it could have been used also for the placement of these boulders. I think absolutely all of these are are plausible. There's no reason to say the road was just used for one thing only. Alrighty. Anybody got any more questions on the past little bit of uh, presentation we had? Because we got a lot more to go. Jamie says, their theory has to have relatively impossible to have that many coincidental lines and arcs. Very impressive research. I, I'm, 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 just, uh, I'm just dazed there. She just dazed me. Just <laughs> unbelievable. Let me see here. Take one more. Has the paved area ever been detected by LIDAR survey? It would show it would show higher, wouldn't it, if the swamp was lower? It, 
the the only way that would be possible is if the the swamp was completely drained when the lidar mm. was was captured. Lidar is near infrared light, and uh, water absorbs it. So you can't really use lidar for underwater detection. So it pretty much just stops uh, right where the shorelines are. Same thing for the swamp. Um, let me see. I might be able to bring my light my local relief back up real fast. If you just give me a second. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, we're not sharing yet, so I can't do that yet. Um, I'll just talk about it. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I can pop it on oh, with, me, it's, with okay. me on it. All right. Let me, let me just figure out how to go back to the page I want to go back to. Hold on. Here we go. Yeah, so you can see in this picture that the LiDAR is very flat. And I think it's even flat in this. Yeah, it's very flat. And that's because it hit water. Okay, so, so when it hits water, that... it just reflects off. It doesn't show any depth, any mounds, any yeah, nothing. Yeah, it just came back at zero practically. Yeah, more or less zero level. And so, yeah, it gets, it gets flattened. You don't get much info. So, I mean, you, if they had it drained when the LiDAR was flown, it's possible. Although it sounds like there was a lot of sediment or organic material on top of it. So, it's hard to say if it would have shown up at all. And um, Judy says... Or did I just lost it here. Like she said, they were comparing Aaron's theory connected to Chris Morford and Corrigan Mall theory. I think mm -hmm. it is. Yep. She said she's working with all these people, uh, Judy. So go ahead, uh, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, for my theory, you mean? Or or as far as collaboration? Uh, collaboration with uh, all the rest uh, of yeah. the Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's no secret that that Oak Island map from Xena's is in French. So. <laughs> and it mentions Rochefoucauld on it. And uh, I know a couple guys working on some alignments from Versailles with a line pointing to the Rochefoucauld <laughs> castle. So, yeah, it seems only natural that we would start looking at how our theories work together because the map that I'm starting to find, or I think I'm finding features are being confirmed, um, has names associated with what they're doing. So it, it, it would be silly to not want to collaborate and try to figure out how, how our parts go together. Um, that is definitely still a work in progress. Um, but I, but I think we've made progress. So, so yep. who knows? Yep. Forward, you can be, we'll you have can, more stuff. You can be in season nine and season 10. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yep. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. We'll get back to the presentation and sure. uh, go from there. Okay, great. All right. Let me hide myself here. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. So let's move forward. Now that we have where, where I had established the money pit location. Um, so let's go look at her Laformule cipher from Xena as well. So this was initially uh, decoded by Professor Kevin Knight. Uh, I believe uh, Doug Crowell had published this, I believe, on the Oak Island Compendium Blackhouse blog when he was still working over there. Um, so here is the decoded message. I have highlighted in or light orange the words that were partial and partially filled in. So the term, you know, we've all, we've all read this before, halt, do not dig. Burrow at 40 foot with an angle of 45 degree, the shaft of 522 foot, you enter the corridor of 1,065 foot, reach the chamber. So we're gonna do this one step at a time. So let's start with burrow at 40 foot with an angle of 45 degree, the shaft of 522 foot. Okay, so going back to our map, Let's go ahead and draw our 522 foot radius circle. And let's go out 45 degrees exactly. 
and I went now 45 degrees. You could say 45 degrees could go northeast technically if you were to go clockwise around uh, a circle. So the reason why I went northwest are for two reasons. First, it's heading towards central mass of the island. If you were to go the other way, you're almost off the island. You're heading towards water. Um, but second, the other reason why I went this way is when you head out that way, 522 feet, you hit another line that we were already looking at. Cone C, cone A, down to 20D. That also intersected this location very cleanly. So that, for me, was confirmation that that 45 was supposed to go to the northwest. And to move forward from here, let's go back to our our codes. You enter the corridor of 1,065 foot. You reach the chamber. So let's do this again from our corridor elbow. Let's go out 1,065 feet. You end up hitting cone E. No other, no other boulders that at least we've deemed significant uh, except for cone E. So this was how I had proposed these corridors. And Interestingly enough, you were just asking about Chris and Corey's uh, work. This line just grazes their Arcadia boulder and also grazes, of course, the eye of the swamp, not directly over it, but next to it. And I actually think that is more significant that it's next to it and not directly uh, on top of it. To me, if you were going, I, I personally think that that eye of the swamp was at one point an open access and air shaft while all of this was getting built together. Um, and I'd actually make sense why that road's heading towards that direction. Um, I believe it was sealed after everything was either complete or, or perhaps when things were moved in or moved out. I'm not sure which direction things were moving when that was sealed, um, but I do suspect it was open at one point and sealed later. If that's true, you wouldn't want that vertical shaft coming down right on top of your corridor because when you go to fill it in again later, you're going to have to figure out how to maintain the integrity of the ceiling you just punched through. If you were to have a shaft next to it, adjacent to the corridor, and then come in through the wall, then when it comes to filling that that vertical shaft later, you just have to rebuild that side of your wall and then just dump and fill to your heart's content. So for me, it actually made more sense when I saw this line not go right over the eye of the swamp, but go next to it on the way to Cone E. To me, this actually made a lot more sense, uh, especially if we go to fill it back in. Um, and that brings me to, I guess, um, the final kind of how do we how do we proceed to prove this? And I know we ended up uh, trying to intercept that 522 corridor. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, this is fun. This is the best part. Uh, Zena's map. Okay, so this is where the instructions from the formula cipher started to coincide with Zena's map. Um, I attempted to georeference this map to Oak Island. Now, this map is not drawn to scale. It was obviously not drawn with uh, fancy equipment or, or, or measuring tools. This was a very rough sketch when this was drawn. So the georeferencing technique I used uh, in GIS world, in the GIS world, it's affectionately known as rubber sheeting. And it allows you to stretch to try to make up for the lost scale. 
Now, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to hear skeptics out there say, oh, you're introducing your own bias. You're going to be, you know, you're, you can kind of stretch it to do whatever you want. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that when I uh, georeferenced this and rubber sheeted, I focused exclusively on the border of the shoreline. It actually makes it easier with this being an island. It's a lot easier to stretch the, uh, an island because you do have a shoreline that you can follow. So I focused exclusively on the shoreline to make sure that the shoreline fit as we understand it around the island. I made sure that the marsh, the, the marsh, the swamp is in the correct location. And then I also locked in the west anchor location. And that's it. I did not attempt to lock in any of these points. These were free floating after I locked the shoreline and the west anchor. And this is what a georeferenced copy of that map looks like. Again, snapped the border of the shoreline. I made sure the west anchor was in its right position and I made sure La Marche was in the correct spot across the swamp. And if you overlay the corridor lines that we just drew, we have our line from the money pit Go into the corridor elbow, and the end of the line ends just short of La Voto Basta Terre. And so for me, cone E is the end of the corridor or the door doorway threshold entering towards the chamber or the vault. And this was so remarkable for me because I didn't. This, this, like I said, when I was real aligning all the boulders, that was one task. And then when I started following these instructions, that was another task. And then when I georeferenced this map, this was another task. And to have all three tasks start to stack the exact same story and be collaborative and not conflict, that was for me, that was just remarkable. That was absolutely an aha moment for me, as Rick would say. Um, so, that yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to to argue. La Vaux de Bastetere is pointing right to the end of the vault, just as Zena's instructions suggested. Um, so this is all very exciting, and I'm sure everyone's kind of wondering, well, why didn't we go investigate over there? <laughs> um, I told them not to drill straight down to the vault. I was very adamant about that, actually, especially until we have a better idea of what's going on on that side of the island, and the reason for that is I drew this pretty this pretty not to scale diagram to try to explain it. Um, with the first corridor being described at 40 feet, it's probably hovering above sea level. There have been reports of blue clay, my understanding, starting to, to show at around 40 feet uh, at those levels. And I suspect that's probably marking where sea level is or was. Um, if that's true, then the 522 foot corridor, in theory, should remain above water. But that being said, if it's running at sea level, in order for it to cross under the swamp, it has to plunge lower at some point to go under the swamp to go over to the other side. And if that's the case, if any water we've done, they've done pump tests, they've done, they've, they've injected water into these systems, sea level has risen a little bit, um, if water did end up spilling into the 522 corridor down an elbow shaft and has filled this long 1,065 foot corridor, if they started punching holes over here, there's a very strong possibility that they 
will cause the vault to flood if it's still safe currently. If that vault is a sealed chamber with no air escape from the top, then there is potential for the vault to still be dry, even if it's below sea level. It is possible the chamber is above sea level, in which case it might be safer, but we don't know that. <laughs> so it's possible the chamber is sitting below sea level and is only being protected by the fact that it's a sealed air bubble. So to, add, so to have them start drilling holes and risk rupturing that seal would cause any water accumulated into this corridor shaft and out the corridors in the elbow shaft would equalize by rushing into the vault. And that was the last thing I wanted them to do. So instead, I also for short, because we were also short on time, um, you know, because, I mean, we know the season has been a little unusual because of the COVID situation. Um, they had limited time. They had limited uh they had limited time to also just make clear space to put a drill somewhere else. I propose that we attempt to intercept the 522 corridor as the simplest attempt to try to prove this out, at least for the first, for our first go at it. And uh, so that was kind of what we attempted to do this year is I, I had proposed a spot uh, along this corridor and uh, that's, that was what we saw, we saw on the show. <laughs> um, that was what we tried to do. And I purposely chose as far away as I could on their cleared pad area because I wanted to clear all other potential searcher work. I wanted to make sure we were completely clear of all of the other disturbance. Um, while I was not thrilled to find out they didn't find the corridor, I was glad to hear that all the material was in situ. I was glad to hear that we didn't run into more searcher stuff um, that will confuse things. So you know, it's kind of a silver lining. <laughs> um, so that's kind of, that's where we're at as far as um, uh, where we're at, as far as the investigations, as far as uh, how my theory came to be. Um, I can probably take questions now. I'm trying to remember what's next on my slides. Yeah, we can take questions now. Now, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. A shaft in the eye. Yeah. Guys, did I see that on the show? Probably not. I don't know. Actually, I think they may have very briefly shown that graphic. Oh, my God. I missed a, a shaft in the eye. Can you correlate more on that? I mean, we were told it was like Dr. Spooner said. You know, it could have been a possible blue clay mine. They dug mm -hmm. around. They dug around the eye. They were taking out huge boulders all over the place. Even mm -hmm. the excavator could not lift some of these boulders because they were so huge. Right. But you think it's a sealed shaft, in your opinion? Well, it's full of blue clay. Blue clay is really good sealant. I agree. And water. <laughs> and they said it was disturbed. So to me, that that's consistent. We got a question from Becky Gilmore on YouTube. Sure. Having the archaeology background as you have, mm -hmm. does she have an opinion of the U-shaped structure and the items around it? Go ahead. Um, I haven't had an opportunity to you know read reports or mm -hmm. or, or get a full detailed. Uh, 
description of everything that was found. So everything that you see is, is I see the same public stuff that you see. Um, okay. I think, I think the, the work that Larry did is great. I think they did a great job exposing it. I think they did a great job uh, dating it. Um, I, I don't really have anything else to say except just take at face value what they found. I think I mean, that the dates are are solid. The the uh, the, the location fits mm -hmm. correlates with what I have here beautifully, as you've seen. I've shown on a couple of maps. Um, the dates suggest to me that it's that it has to do with. Oh, I've got a dog crying over there. Hopefully, he'll be quiet. Um, I think the dates to me suggest that they, it was put in maybe by searchers that had set off the flood tunnel, mm -hmm. um, rather than the actual depositors themselves. I suspect the depositors are earlier than the 1700s. Okay. Is there any connection to any of your lines or anything going to the new Ross? Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't want to misspeak. I, I think it's. I would. I don't want to misspeak, but I think no it's problem. possible that the West Anchor. Don't hold me to this because no, I'd have no. to look at it to confirm. But I do recall when I was first starting to look at this, I think that West Anchor to Headstone to Cone Sea Line was headed very close to the New Ross area. I would have to go and confirm that. Um, but I, I think that line might be headed towards that way. Okay. Any more questions? We got more presentation to go or no? Just a little bit. Uh, okay. I won't be able to demonstrate the lead cross, but I can at least talk about it a little bit. Okay. Uh, Missouri Dave says, how many holes did they drill to find the corridor? Because have the drill drifted a little bit when they were looking at your spot? Um, I can't speak to how many holes they drilled, um, but they... There, I mean, all I mean, you see all the squiggle lines on yeah. all of their drills, so they all they all deviate a little bit. Um, these are no exception. Um, that being said, a corridor has to have some thickness to it, so you know we should we should have been able to at least you know the clear the clearance shouldn't have been that right that you bad. Want, you want to take uh, two or three minutes off, and I'll just chat with the members and take care of the puppy, or it's up to you. Yeah, is he crying? You guys can hear him. Let me go. Sure. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I'll go and put him somewhere else. So All right. He's not sitting there. Go ahead. Let me know when you get back. I'll I'll mumble to the. It'll guys only later. take a sec. It'll only take a. No second. problem. Take care of the pet. Okay, guys. Oh my god. Oh my god. You know. The eye, is a shaft. The blue clay. Oh my god. What do you think, guys? What do you think so far? I think it's fantastic. Got a lot to absorb here. But it'll be on YouTube. It'll be on Facebook. We can go through it slowly. And um, I think it's an amazing thing she's doing here. Worth every second, guys. It's worth every second. Unbelievable. This is big, Barbara. Welcome back, Aaron Hutton. Hi. We're talking to Aaron Hutton here on the Quest of Oak Island Facebook page and QOOI and the YouTube page. A lot of members came in. A lot of your uh, people that you work with uh, uh, came in, but they flew by so fast. I think Chris Morphy's <laughs> here and 
I don't know. It, it just flies by so fast, and I only mm -hmm. can get a section of who's here. And on YouTube, if they don't join my streaming service, their name is only shown as Facebook user. Gotcha. On the Facebook side, it only shows me five statements at a time, and they just oh, fly wow. by, and I can't chat back on Facebook, but <laughs> but I can chat back on uh, on YouTube. Okay. What the. Uh, and Jeffrey Irving, Jeffrey Irving was my first member, Aaron, back in, oh, wow. back in August of 2016, Jeff Irving, awesome. who presented to the war room was my first member. So, um, and Jeff says, I don't recall seeing her under swamp shaft diagram. No, that, that was a whole shock to me. So, um, okay, maybe it wasn't, I thought it may have been briefly shown, but maybe not, maybe not. Surprise, surprise. But I love it. I love it all. Okay, how many questions are I just got here? Scott, hello. I don't recall seeing this. Yep. About the sunken ship in the swamp. What's your opinion on the theories of they burnt the ship in the swamp um, theory? What do you think of that one? Um, They, they burnt something in the swamp. Mm. I'm not... I, I, and they definitely have ship materials. Right. Um, I part of me wonders if it was. I kind of wonder if. Okay, so when they sail there, if they need to build anything, if they need to work on their shafts, mm -hmm. if they need to do any of this work, um, they're going to need building materials, and right. so their options are either hack down a bunch of trees or use the wood from some ships right. that's already been processed. So I guess I'm just, uh, I, I definitely agree with all the evidence that's showing that there is a burn event of some type um, in that general vicinity. And there's definitely ship parts, but part of me kind of wonders, was it, was it still in ship form when it burned or are these materials that were used for something else um, right. first and then burned later? I guess that's the only part Um I'm not, I'm not sure it was still a ship when it burned. Right. Let's and also when the rest of the cast was on Laird and Dr. Spooner and Steve and Jeffrey and Tony Sampson and mm -hmm. all the rest of them, if I'm leaving them out, I still can't believe how clean of artifacts, say Smith's Cove is, this 460-foot mm -hmm. road. We find a couple of burn spots. We find a couple of plates, mm -hmm. pieces. We're not right. finding Nothing. As far as I'm saying, it gives us artifacts. It gives us a date. But the mm -hmm. quantity is just purely like they cleaned up after each other and they just disappeared. Like they don't want to yeah. be seen. Uh, they made this road. But then uh, if they made this paved area, the sea level was down six feet. So it wasn't under muck at the time. Right. In the 1400s or the 1500s, there was no road in front of the swamp. So if the mm -hmm. tide came in, that would bring in the cork stump or whatever and everything else that was coming in and out of the swamp. You know what I mean, Aaron? It's so mm -hmm. clean. Even the Smith's Cove, what they got the gold dredging machine to mm -hmm. find any kind of fine artifacts. I don't remember them finding anything on that machine, just a bone. They showed a big bone and maybe it was an ox bone. We can't find no ox bones or anything like that. But um, I'm still in shock of the amount of stuff that's not found for the amount of work that was done on the island. That's all I'm saying. What do you think? 
Um, I, I will agree. I mean, there's a ton of artifacts, but not necessarily at that depositor kind yeah, of suspected right. range of time. I yeah. completely agree with you. They, they definitely knew how to clean up after themselves or they weren't there very long is the other possibility. Um, usually you find an abundance of artifacts and people have stuck around a while because it accumulates after a long period of time. Um, if they were only there for a short period of time, there would already be a lot less to find to begin with. Um, and if they were cleaning up after themselves deliberately, then you're going to have even less. Um, so to me, that's what it leans towards to me is they were either cleaning up after themselves or they were not there very long or both. Yeah, but Cam Dixon says the chance of finding the cross seems a million to one. Then it fits on Aaron's map. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we can talk about that too next if you want. I won't be able to demonstrate it. I was not allowed to keep the dimensional data. Okay. So I won't be able to demo, but I can still talk about it. Already um, go. Yeah, I've got I've got some slides if you want to. All right, let me uh, pop out of here. Sure. You okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Tons of energy here. <laughs> All right, so let's wait for the map to come up. Perfect. Okay, so the lead cross. Um, you guys all saw the demonstration, I'm sure, of them tracing lines around it. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, this cross is obviously not symmetrical. It's got one arm longer than the other. It's kind of his head's tilted to the side. There is no way to say that this was a, a geometrically correct or symmetrical artifact. Um, and yet, despite that. It's capable of drawing some pretty precise angles. And what first clued me in on what this cross's true purpose might have been was the head of the cross. The head of the cross, while kind of round, it actually isn't. It actually has along the top a series of flat edges. And it's those edges that started suggesting to me, especially knowing that lead is soft and um, that it kind of implied that something was buttoned up against it. And so that was when I started to wonder, is a square or a ruler supposed to be leaning up against this thing? And so that was kind of when I, when I started to ask them about, about some of the information about this lead cross. And lo and behold, when we traced it, now again, we traced it face down. This picture is face up. Um, I can kind of simulate it. <laughs> Kind of. This is just flipped, obviously. But um, but I'm just going to do it real quick so we can follow the line of the uh, square hole. When we traced it with, with the square that you guys saw on the show, it made perfect angles. And I mean perfect. The 60-degree equilateral triangle on the bottom, you can take a protractor to the tracing, and it's, it's perfect to the human eye. Um, same goes with the top. We have the top making a 45 degree or sorry, a 90 degree angle right up at the top as well. Um, and interestingly enough, if you trace the little hole through the hole here, the square, this part of the line right here aligns with a 15 degree angle as well. And that was just remarkable considering how irregular this thing is. It's got one arm longer than the other. Everything about it is irregular and yet it's still creating perfect geometry. And if we take it upside down, this is how we depicted the tracing on the show, is if we take this corner to the west anchor and this corner 
to the north anchor. Of course, this being an equilateral triangle, this is 30 degrees, just like I did between the west anchor and the north anchor. But what I found really fascinating about this is that this, the map I needed to print in order for this to work was 1 to 6,250. Now, this number may not sound like it means a lot. But I've seen a number like that, very, very close number to that before in my CRM work. Uh, this is a website that I frequently went to doing cultural resources management here in the United States. Um, not for Traverse City, obviously, down here in Texas. But um, in cultural resource management, uh, whenever a field archaeologist and his crew were going to go out and survey an area, we would do recon, uh, reconnaissance beforehand and download historic topographic maps, historic aerial imagery, anything that we can get um, from a historic perspective before we go out so we kind of know what we're expecting. And so this is one of the websites that I used to go to on a regular basis. And the United States has a series of topographic maps at a scale of one, or one to 62,500. So that is actually just 10 times higher than the scale that the Oak Island map was that I printed to work with the lead cross. Now, that scale is a very close approximation of one inch equals one mile. A one inch equals one mile is actually 63,360. The one to 62,500 is a very close, slightly rounded off and popular round, popularly rounded off version that is very closely approximating one inch equals one mile. Um, and as you can see, it was used on those topographic maps. So one to 6,250 means that that lid cross combined with those anchors is making a map closely approximating one inch equals one tenth of a mile. And so for me, that was incredibly significant. And we have to remember inches, feet, and miles were not standardized until much more recently. So the fact that it's that close and they could have been using a different mile. They could have been using a different foot um, to be hovering right around that one inch equals one tenth of a mile. So much so that it matches the rounded off figure that we use in U.S. topographic maps from the 50s for me was just it was obviously deliberate. Um, so that was the scale significance that uh, I think the show kind of kind of glossed over a little bit um, that I thought was really important because it, the, it was really the scale that made the relationship between those anchors and that lead cross solid for me. Um, yeah, so that was that was how that that relationship came came about is I thought it was just remarkable that this little lead cross they found in Smith's Cove combined with these two north anchors and you can start a drawing on a piece of paper of Oak Island at one inch equals one tenth of a mile. That for me was another aha moment, I guess you could say. Um, I think that's it as far as my presentation is concerned. Yeah, that's. That's it. If anybody has some questions, we can take some questions. Unbelievable. <laughs> now, Tom Burns says, now we can understand why not all the facts make the show. Yep. <laughs> There's so much. 
There's so much. Unbelievable. I, mean, I understand. But uh, I think I'm going to, let me see here. Uh, Jennifer Brandt said, Aaron, when they told you they didn't find the tunnel, you sounded so crestfallen, but it seems your spirits lifted when they said they'll be able to get you better information. Have you been able to recalculate the location for the tunnel? I don't know if you can say anything about this, but I just wanted to put that question out there. Go ahead, Erin. Yeah, I, I probably can't say. Um, I'm always constantly trying to revise my data. Right. Um, obviously, I mean, obviously, I'm trying to always revise my data. I really can't say. I don't. I have no idea. It's ongoing. What the show has in store. Yep. Yeah, it's ongoing. We're just gonna. We'll have to find out together. We'll have to. You know, we're we're. Yeah. And as far as the uh, the crestfallen, I mean, you're right. Oak Island is uh, an emotional roller coaster, and it's a bumpy ride. So yep. <laughs> when people are calling you, you get excited. <laughs> Yup, and uh, so, when you have the cast members on and I ask them, well, what about the Behringer survey? It's ongoing, John. What about Smith's Cove? It's ongoing, John. What about mm -hmm. the Money Pit? It's ongoing, John. What about, it's all ongoing. It's never, I would like to get yeah. one definite answer on one thing at a time. And the only thing we got definite this year, you're going to laugh about this. We know it's not a serpent mound. We know it's a spoils mound. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to agree with that as well. But I was just saying, I'm trying to find out one, except for the dates on the artifacts and the wood dates and all that and the cribbing dates. The one island factor is it wasn't a serpent mound. It was a spoils mound. You know what I mean? It's like we got a definite answer we can check at, like check that off yeah. the map. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. I'm looking for things to eliminate and the whole thing's still ongoing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I do have to agree with the spoil pile, just uh, given it's it's general location. There's a lot of there's a lot of disturbance in that general area. So right. I kind of I tend to agree. And with I what saw they came uh, up with for that. like the map from 1929, that money put area and everything was just I don't see any rocks. I don't see nothing in 1929. So yeah. um, I don't know. It's a little blurry. The 29 imagery is a little bit blurry. So it's hard to know if those boulders would have picked up real well. The 40s imagery is a lot clearer. Yep. Okay. Now, where am I here in my pattern? Okay. Now, uh, Michelle Badjar says, map alignment question. I hope I can pronounce some of these words. In 1544, they discovered inclination. Mm -hmm. that, would that mean... Older maps wouldn't take that into account and will have to be calibrated with anchor points. Haven't noticed this issue mentioned, or am I off base? I have no idea what sure. I just said. Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, so inclination. First of all, let's let's clarify some terms. Uh magnetic inclination is when you if you have the ground and you have the magnetic field running from South Pole to the North Pole across the ground. Inclination is whether or not that magnetic field is running level to the ground or not. So if you have a magnetic field and it's running like this around the planet, mm -hmm. right? Towards the southern end of the pole, the magnetic field is actually shooting out away from the planet. And then toward, while it's around the equators, it's actually following and hugging the planets. And then when it comes up back to the top, 
it shoots down back through the planet. So at the top of the planet, it, your, your inclination is down towards the ground. And at the southern pole, your inclination is actually shooting out towards the sky. The, that inclina that's inclination. Okay. And, and they're correct. That was first measured in 1544. However, inclination is actually not really necessary for navigation. I think what she was referring to is magnetic declination. Declination is the difference between true north and magnetic north. Um, and that is something that all navigators have to be very aware of um, when it comes to the differentiation between true north and perhaps your north star. And, and if you're using a compass, what the compass would tell you. Um, magnetic declination was not discovered in 1544. Magnetic declination has been around a lot longer. That has actually been, that was first recognized in China in 1088. So magnetic declination has actually been understood for a very, very long time. Um, so it would have been available and important for, for navigation and boulder alignments, potentially, or, or tunneling, actually, potentially, as well. Okay. Um, Jeffrey Irving has a question. Did it occur to you, Aaron, to use a nautical mile scale for adjustments due to the possibility that depositors were seafarers like a one nautical mile equals 1.5 miles? And how much would this change would make in your determination? I did try a few nautical mile measurements for some scales. And I actually found most of what was going on on that island was even measurements between boulders I found were rounding really nicely to or, or closely to three feet or yards. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm, it's hard to say if they're using nautical miles. Oak Island itself is on land, so I suspect they would have been using land measurements of un or unit measurements when they were actually plotting things on the island. I'm not sure why they would use nautical for a land project, but that doesn't necessarily mean they weren't using nautical miles when they're navigating while they're on the water. All righty. We'll take, uh, I got one more question about the sextant, and then we'll have you maybe answer three questions for our members sure. to actually talk to you, and we'll button it up. I thank you so much for tonight, Erin. Absolutely. Uh, Michelle, um, Egloff says, the map that is dated 1179 seems to have longitude and latitude information. She says the sextant wasn't in use until around 1730 or possibly a little earlier. My question is, how could the long lat lines have been derived from this map without a sextant? Thank you so much, Erin. Sure. Um, well, first of all, as far as those other maps are concerned, I haven't done a whole lot with them. I'm still working through those. So as far as trying to figure out where they fit in the puzzle, that's still ongoing. Okay. ongoing. <laughs> However, that, that being said, I can speak to the sextant a little bit. Okay. Um, it's true that if you go and Google or look up, look up the history of the sextant, their current consensus is that it was invented in the early 1700s. However, I have personally seen depictions of a sextant as early as 1596. And I think I gave you a copy of that graphic there, John, so you can and share I'm, it. And I'm ongoing looking. <laughs> <laughs> I can pull it up on my screen if I have to, if you want to do it that way instead. I have them here too. If you, oh, there you go. Okay. So 
this is a, a close-up of a graph of a lot much larger graphic and it was published in a book called Empathy Trim Sapiente Eterne by Heinrich Kuhnrath in 1596. He was an alchemist, he was a hermetic philosopher, and he very clearly depicts both a compass and a sextant. And this book was initially published in 1596. So there you go. It's definitely not just from the 1700s. It goes at least to the 16th century. And I'm I'm willing to bet that the sextant was in use a lot earlier than that, but probably only in small circles. Um, yeah, that's my biggest thing. Is the thing is with archaeology and in and and in as a historian or archaeologist. Any date that we try to put to a technology is just the earliest date that we've ever confidently encountered it. So in archaeology, we are constantly pushing dates back as we find definitive, well-documented proof of it further back. Um, I'm not sure anyone's really noticed that that sextant was in that graphic before. Um, and that's probably why our current consensus dates are sitting in the 1700s. But there are earlier depictions um, that you can mm -hmm. find every once in a while. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that there are even earlier depictions um, if we all look hard enough. But there probably were in small circles people knowing how to use these, these things. They just weren't probably in the general public, which is why you know, in archaeology, you're always working with such a small sample of whatever material was actually around at the time. And so if this was something that was only done and used in small circles, if only a few people knew how to use this or a small collection of people knew how to use this, the chances of us encountering their piece um, is a lot less likely. So I'm willing to bet that we're going to keep pushing sextant dates further back as we continue finding earlier examples. Um, mm -hmm. And that graphic there is one example from 1596 that definitely questions our current understanding of sextants. Invention. Yep, I agree. So now, members, we're going to, uh, you got the chance to talk to Erin herself. We're going to take three calls. And um, if nobody wants to call, let me know. Put it in the text. I only can take one call at a time. For you to actually talk to a person that's on the show is just unbelievable. This technology with Facebook and YouTube to actually ask her questions yourself. Just blows me away. I just love it, and I thank you for doing this, Erin. Not a problem. It's been it's been a joy and been really fun. But um, some nights I get a lot of calls. Some nights I don't get any calls. I mean, people are private, and I understand that. But uh, here's your deal, everybody. Here it goes. <laughs> I'm giving them a shot. This way, Aaron, they can't say, well, you didn't put the number up, John. You know, you said in this post <laughs> that Aaron would take some calls. So I got I got to cover my. Uh, hey, my you know what? Thing. If no calls come in, it means I answered the questions really well. <laughs> right. They're all answered. Right. <laughs> and then after the uh, goodbyes and everything, Aaron, just stay uh, online when I put you on stage and I'll talk to you sure. after it ends just for about five or six minutes. Absolutely. But um, I loved it all. I just, I mean, I go back and probably have to repeat, watch it uh, again. And I hope that people that didn't see it, if you have time um, and answer maybe some of their questions on my Quest Facebook group, 
uh, on other questions they might have that we haven't covered. I would really appreciate it if uh, you can answer anything you can, obviously, sure. with their questions. I thank you so much. Mm-hmm. They're all saying, when are you going to be back on the show? She don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. No idea. Nobody knows. We will find out together. Yep, like she says, we see it on Tuesday as they see it on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Daniel Spino, thank you for your presentation. Aaron is adorable and smart. Great presentation. Thank you. Uh-oh, we got a call coming in. Hello. Aaron is adorable and smart. Great presentation. Thank you. Who's it? Who, who's this? Coming in. Hey, John, John, can you hear me? John, can you hear me? Oh. I hear somebody. Hello? Are you there? I lost them, Aaron. Uh-oh. Please no, call back. There was a connection. Yep, Connie, it'll all, it'll all be on my Facebook uh channel and uh youtube channel i never delete them they're always on there for everybody to see them we'll try one more time Aaron. sure hmm. phone call coming in Nope, and then it just went off. <laughs> Unbelievable. My phone's fully charged. Got voicemail, voicemail. Well, that's not doing any good. Jake is suggesting that there might be a feedback Hello. problem on the broadcast. Hello, you're on live. Hello. Can you hear me, John? Yeah, you're coming in loud as heck. You got your audio down a little bit? Cut it down? Yeah, you, you got to turn your volume down to speak to us. Okay, it's down. Go ahead. Yeah, you're coming in loud as heck. You got your audio down a little bit? I got it down almost to the bottom. Because I'm, I'm getting an echo. Yeah, you, you got to turn your volume down to speak to us. Yeah, I have it down low. Okay, Aaron, can you hear me too? I can hear you, yes. I still hear some feedback, but I can hear you. Okay, so the question is, is that better? Oh, much better. It just got quiet. Go ahead. Oh my God! Yeah. Oh my God! You finally came through. I was, I was almost <laughs> going to go crazy there for a second. Aaron, can you hear him? Yes, I can. I think yes. Okay, go ahead. You're cutting in and out. Uh oh. We can hear you. Go ahead with your question. 
crazy there for a second. Can you hear me? Okay. Aaron, does um does does any of your work uh, involve the use of uh, the astronomy and the, the sky and celestial? Um, I do have some ongoing research that does have to do with star alignment. I don't want to talk over anybody. Um, I am working on some ongoing work for star alignments. Um, I don't, I, I haven't done a whole lot to present it yet. Um, I don't know if that's coming up. I don't know if that's stuff that we're going to talk about in a future year. I'm not sure, but I do have some ongoing research that does have to do with some celestial alignments. Um, I talked to Kristana about some of, some of that work as well. That's part of the collaboration work that we've been doing in research. Um, it's still ongoing. <laughs> um, it wasn't part of this initial this initial work, but I am kind of right now working on some potential celestial connections with this. Yes. Yep, I had to uh, disconnect them because that was just a uh, mess. That's okay. We got the question out. You got it out. Okay, great. Because uh, something like that, when that happens, it's like feedback, and either mm -hmm. his computer's not down with the volume, or the phone's not down with the volume, and right. that's when all that happens. So the phone lines are open for question number two. If it's if it's like question number one, oh my lordy forty. There we go. Sounds like my dog is starting to bark outside now. Cross your fingers. Hello, you're live with John and Aaron. Who's this? Hello. Hello. Hello, John. Yes. Who's this? This is Tom. Tom Burns, my main man, Ern. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. Nice to meet you. Yes. Great presentation. Oh, thank you. Quick question on the location of the sealed vault. Sure. Just wondering what other access points you might think there are to that vault. Uh, well, um, I, looking at Zena's map, um, I would not be surprised if there are other connections from those other features that she has on the west side of the island. Um, most particularly, I would not be surprised if that hatch has some type of connection to that vault location. Um, I'm still working on trying to, I'm hoping to be able to hone in on a lot of those features on the west side of the map at some point. Um, and I and I suspect a lot of those will be interconnected as well. That's kind of my hope. I thank you so much, uh, Mr. Tom Burns. The phone is on fire here, Aaron. Oh, it's going now. Hello, you're live with Aaron and John on the quest of Oak Island. Who am I speaking to? Um, I do have. Hello? 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 Hello, you're on live. Uh, uh, what I wanted to know is, I, I just turned this on, but and I didn't hear the whole thing, but I just had a question. Back when Dan Hensky found that area that he had remembered, where they found um, a shaft, it was like to the left of one of the roads that leads down from the money pit, I think, down to the 
ocean. Um, it seemed like there was some water that came out. They came out, um, they dug down, and it got flooded with water. But it seemed like the water was red water that might have had the dye in it. Mm-hmm. And it looked to me like the same color red that they had found on um, Smith's Cove. But nobody seemed to notice that the water was red, mm-hmm. meaning it would have been tied to the money pit. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not off the top of my head. I would have to go back and figure out where that map location was. I would have to. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trouble understanding. It's kind of muffled. Oh. Um, but the area was where Dan Hemsky remembered that they had dug a long time ago, and then they decided to dig. I think it was last season, two, two, two seasons ago. Okay. And they dug and they found water. Well, they I would have to re-familiarize myself. I it. thought it was red. I thought the water was red, like it had come from the money pit when they put the dye in the money pit years ago. And I thought that that water they collected in there looked like it had the red dye in it. Well, I think this was when they dug, uh, I think uh, they were looking for shaft two and uh, shaft nine. Uh, yeah, it was when well, they were looking for a shaft and they found like really big logs. Yep. And it, there was a shaft there. Yeah, but, but I if you go back and look at it, it looked like the water was red. Yeah, but uh, it oh, could okay. have been from sediment. What do you think, Erin? Can you hear her okay? Yeah, I can hear her fine. Um, I would have to go back and refamiliarize myself with that that part of the uh, the footage. Um, it, I think it would be totally plausible that there could still be remnant dye um, through all of those corridors. I mean, it has to go somewhere. And if they stop pumping and there's still dye in there, it's probably still sitting there infiltrating whatever whatever caps you have down there so i feel like that would be totally plausible um that you've got dye still showing up um after how many dye tests they've done that water probably i can't imagine that water has a huge current going on unless they're actively you know doing stuff to it at the time i have trouble believing that there's an ongoing current under there so i suspect whatever they pump down there after they're done pumping whatever's still there probably just sits put so that would be possible. If you have any influence with the people on the show, when they dig, if they could put a little map of the island and show where they're digging, because mm-hmm. a lot of times I lose track when they go from place to place to place, right. where yeah. they actually are. Absolutely. Does that happen to you too? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I feel your pain. It's been very difficult to try, uh, before, before ever being in contact with them, trying to compile where things have happened and whatnot, and with their little not-to-scale graphic map of where things are going mm-hmm. on. Um, it's absolutely not accurate or to scale. Um, but it gives you a general okay. visual representation. So I, I feel your pain. <laughs> Just to let you know that the reason you weren't getting calls before because it said you weren't available. I know. Why did saying that? I have no idea why. The phone's charged. The phone's I don't ready. know, but okay. it did come back. All right, I thank so you. I just wanted I, to let you know that was why. All right, I thank you for your call. Thank Thanks you. for answering my question. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, You're welcome. Bye. We'll take one more. Did that come across okay? Yeah, I thought okay. so. Because I got my earpiece out, so I can't, I can barely hear you, but as long as they can hear you. And I don't know why my phone's doing that, but uh, we'll take one more, one more call and we'll button it up for tonight. Yeah, it's very hard to find their location where they're at. They're at the pathway. They're going towards the uplands. They're on the side of the swamp. They're not on the side of the swamp. Very hard to determine where they're at at the time. It is difficult. I very much agree. 
and Vicki Tim Brown. Has any of the lines been extended out to other points in the area to see if they intersect with some of the old fortresses in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, Halifax, Citadel, Annapolis, Royal, Fort Wootensburg, and Fort Monjour uh, NB, including the nearby community of New Ross? We'll answer that question and then we'll button it up. Um, I have not spent much time uh, extending the lines off of Oak Island. I think New Ross was the only one that I had I'd done a little bit of investigating in. So that is definitely an area that there could absolutely be more uh, research to be done. I think it, and I actually think it's a great idea. Um, I think a lot of these lines, uh, I think there is a possibility that these lines could extend beyond Oak Island, especially if we start seeing a relationship to New Ross. I see no reason why that couldn't also be true for other spots. I think that's totally worth investigating. Alrighty, Aaron. Well, that says, uh, thank you so much for <laughs> giving us the opportunity on your first live stream on Facebook and YouTube. You did fantastic. Thank you. I thank you so much. I hope you come back. I probably and, will. <laughs> and, uh, talk to the members and uh, look at the chat after it's uh, posted on the Facebook group. We thank you so much. It's been a great show. Great. It's Even been my... a pleasure to be here. And we made it. We made it. All right. I'm going to hide you in staging. No, just hang on for a little bit and I'll get back sure. to you. Everybody's going to say their goodbyes. Here goes the chat going crazy. Mm -hmm. Barbara, Kevin, Judy. Tammy, Kevin, the rest of the crew, Jake, mm -hmm. Chris, Curtis, Michelle, Annette, Jamie. I don't know how many people were in the broadcast, but I think this is going to be a record. And I hope everybody enjoyed it just as much as I did. Thank you, Aaron. You're a wealth of information for us. Acorns, thanks for answering. Love all the possibilities. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. Thank you, Aaron, for Michelle. Possibilities. Thank you. Thank you for answering. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you from the Quest of Oak Island. <laughs> Thank you from the YouTube side. So I'm going to say my goodbyes, but I'll be right back to give you my little speech at the end of the uh, show that I always do. And, Aaron, I'll see you in a little while. Thank you so much. Sure. For your time. Not a problem. Thank you, everyone. And everybody, that was a fantastic show. Renee, best show ever. Thank you both. Connie, thanks again. Sadie, Dieter, Renee, Judy, Tim, all you guys are fantastic. But don't forget, always go forward. You may have a setback in your life, but always go forward. Stay positive. And if you can't be mentally tough in these times, there's great help out there. Be safe. And if you have a dream, believe in that dream. No matter how old you are, believe in that dream. There's always that little person, that little girl, that little guy in that body. If it's 90 years old or whatever it goes on, there's that little person in there. That If it says something and you have a dream, please go forward. Stay safe. We'll see you Tuesday pre-show at 7 o'clock. I thank Tammy, Michelle, Renee, and Judy for all the work they do. I'll see you again on Tuesday. Thank you for so much. Thank you. Go forward.